This is Hear Me Now, the preaching podcast. I'm Dr. John Nixon, Sr. Welcoming you again. A visitor handed me a note as I stood at the door greeting worshipers after service. I'm wondering what this is. You know, what did I do wrong now? I put it in my pocket to read later. When I pulled it out, I noticed that he put his name to it, which is a good sign. And sometimes when you get these anonymous notes, they come from folks with an axe to grind or some kind of pet peeve. But his name was there, so was his number, so I felt better. He had written a one-sentence question on his note that I found very meaningful. He was commenting on the sermon I just preached. Here was his question. Do you think people would respect the Bible more if we said the Bible says rather than Paul says? His question raises an important distinction between the Bible writer and the Bible's author. In most books, it's the same person, but not when it comes to the Bible. And it's easier to lose sight of the inspiration and the authority of the Bible when we focus more on the human than the divine. It's easier, for example, to reinterpret or discount a scriptural truth may rub me the wrong way if all I have to do is disagree with Paul. I can say, well, he's a misogynist, he hates women. Or I can say, he's an ancient, what does he know about the modern world? And then I can dismiss him. But when the preacher says, the Bible says, instead of Paul says, it's a different story. The seriousness of the, of the text is elevated from the opinion of one flawed man to the truth revealed by the Holy Spirit. And as listeners, we realize that to reject it out of hand is to reject its author. The authority of the Bible is the Holy Spirit. I want to look at this doctrine for our podcast today, the doctrine of the Bible as the Word of God. And notice how the Bible itself explains itself, which no other book can legitimately do. Because the Bible has no peer, it explains itself. So what text shall I use to preach my doctrine of the Bible? There are many that I could use. It's important, the one I choose, because the text is going to direct the sermon not the preacher direct the sermon. Now, what I'll do is I'm going to choose a text um, that has some kind of narrative element to it because I just like stories. And here's the one I found. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21, a text about the Bible that has a, a narrative element to it. Let me read it to us. <clears throat> Excuse me. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. Here we go. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more sure, 
and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's our preaching, our preaching passage, our piece of text. Let's go back to verse 16 and let's listen. Again, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, when we read this passage, we see right away that it's part of an ongoing discussion because it begins with a conjunction. Context is always important, but especially when the text you're studying is clearly tied to the previous text. That's what four represents. Four here suggests a teaching to be further developed, or maybe an illustration or example of what's already been taught. So, what comes before this four in verse 16? Going back to verse 3, for context, we see Peter is describing the process of salvation. In verse 3, he talks about the call of Christ by his divine power, a reference to our repentance. In verse 4, he talks about how we partake of the divine nature. This is a powerful passage. You should preach it sometime. He says we become partakers of the divine nature when we come to Christ. That's what what justification by faith brings about. And then verse 5 and following He talks about growing in the graces of Christ by adding one godly attribute to another. He goes from one to the other in those verses, talking about add this, add this, add that. So this is what the four refers back to in verse 16. Peter is in the process of explaining how salvation happened. He makes it a point to say that, you know, he's not writing to to novices. He affirms in verse 13 and following that what he's saying is by way of reminder. In other words, he's already taught these things. They've already believed these things and and been justified. So now he's just repeating what he already taught. That's important for us to think about as preachers. Peter says, it's right for me to refresh your memory. Something for us to keep in mind. As imperfect human beings, we forget So that even when we know something, we need to be reminded of it because we naturally forget. And today with the automatic dial and camera phones and Google, modern technology, we don't need to remember anything anymore. We can just look it up. It's almost as if memorization has been lost. But also, when we don't forget, even then we need a reminder. Because we're subject to what I call fading memory. By that I mean... The things we remember gradually fade when they are not refreshed in our memory. And our faith becomes a background faith. We need to hear the gospel repeated so as to keep it in the forefront of our minds and our faith primary and strong and always growing. So here's what Peter's doing. He's repeating something the believers already know. I'm listening to the text now. My my thoughts are following, you know, what was written in the text. 
This may or may not show up in my sermon. I don't know that yet, but I'm just listening. Now, getting back to verse 16, that, that's the background of it. That's, that's the four that comes before it. Now, getting back to it, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Look at what's happening here. The apostle now is talking about sources. We have not followed clever stories. He's talking about his teaching, his preaching, and where it comes from. The source of his teachings has been given, not as his imagination, nor as anybody else's. The New Living Translation says we were not making up stories. The Amplified Bible says stories or myths. That's not the source of his writing, his preaching, says Peter. In fact, if you think about it, the New Testament writers didn't quote any source other than the Old Testament. And they cited the Old Testament in order to show how it reveals Christ. That is to update it the way Christ did. Jesus said, I have not come to change the law or the prophets. That's a reference to the, to the Old Testament, law or prophets. But I've come to fulfill it. Fill to the full. When Christ uh, quoted the past, he quoted it to update it. He said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. So the disciples taught the way their Lord taught. They did not lean on the great minds of their day or the acknowledged authorities. They didn't need to. What they had was original. They were there with Jesus day by day and were taught directly by him firsthand. So Peter says, I'm passing on to you what I received directly from the Lord. Peter's saying, I am an eyewitness. Let's think think this through for a minute. What are the implications of Peter's writing based on eyewitness testimony from the source? Let's think this through. If this is true, then there's a certain authority that must be attributed to the Scriptures beyond Peter. It's not based on the wisdom of the day. It's not based on the apostles' own ideas. It's from a divine origin, which makes it, therefore, timeless and universal. Everything from God is universal. Everything from God is timeless, at least on the level of principle. So, if we're thinking about this correctly... This idea of timeless and universal challenges the whole notion of relativism, which says each person is entitled to their own opinion and nobody can judge. What's true for you may not be true for me, and my truth is as good as your truth. Relativism. This will be interesting for us to get into in our next phase when we get to step two. That's suggested here. I'll make sure we get back to that in our, when we treat the text. Okay. So in this verse 16 passage, Peter is singling out a specific occasion that he experienced as an eyewitness. The original knowledge and where it came from. He gives us an example of this is where the story part of the text comes in. Verse 17. He received honor and glory from God the Father. When the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The NLT there says, with him, it says, he brings me great joy. That's wonderful. What a great thing to be said about anybody by God. And we have the same opportunity, beloved, to bring great joy 
to the heart of the Father in the same way Jesus did, by living by faith in response to God in a primary way. Loving Him, doing His will, obeying Him. That brings joy to the heart of God. It brings God great joy. That's what Jesus did. Right? Verse 18. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. What's he talking about there? Well, the margin, if you don't know, the margin sends us to a companion text in Matthew 17, where Matthew spells out and tells the story of the Mount of Transfiguration uh, episode. Peter is hearkening back to it. He's giving an example of his eyewitness experience with Christ. Here's an example of what he was talking about. You remember what happened there. The Bible says that Jesus separates the three from the twelve. He takes them up the mountain with him. The three, Peter, James, and John, don't know what's coming next. But as readers, we know. We know this too. Whenever Jesus pulls the three aside out of the twelve, something spectacular is about to happen. And so it does on this mountain. Jesus is transformed in his physical appearance. He's shining like the sun. His clothes, his clothes are gleaming white, Matthew 17 says. Moses and Elijah appear beside him. They represent the righteous dead, Moses, and the righteous living, who will be caught up together in the air when Jesus comes a second time. This is a depiction then of the second coming. Jesus in the middle, the righteous dead, the righteous living beside him. Then they hear the voice of God from heaven. This is my beloved son who brings me great joy. Peter says, I was there when that happened. I didn't read about it in some book. Nobody told me about it. I'm an eyewitness. I'm passing on to you, therefore, what I know firsthand. Peter's relating also to how this applies to the Holy Scriptures. The Scriptures are eyewitness testimony of what Jesus did and taught, of how the Old Testament reveals him and the New Testament relates him. Then we get sent to another companion text relative to the scriptures and Jesus in the middle, right? John 5, 39, you know this text too. Here's how it reads. You search the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. The New Living Translation says, that point to me. This is a vital truth, which we've been emphasizing on this podcast. We've been trying to talk about how the scriptures all point to Jesus Christ. So we understand that in order to get to the bottom of the text, we must understand how the text reveals Christ. Because Jesus says, these are the texts, these are the truths that point to me, that testify about me worth exploring, too, when we get to our step two. Make sure we come back to this in our exegesis step. Okay, going on now, verse 19. And so we have the the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to take heed to as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. The NIV has it, the prophetic message as something completely reliable. A prophetic word confirmed, meaning completely reliable. So just as Peter's experience was trustworthy because it was eyewitness news, 
So also the messages of the prophets are completely reliable as God's word. Therefore, in this basis, he's saying we should pay attention to them. It's interesting. That's his logic. That's his reasoning. Just like I saw, the prophets saw. Just like my word is firsthand, so is theirs coming from the Holy Spirit. And therefore, he says, pay attention. Listen, learn till the morning star rises in your heart. Verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. And he goes on here with his teaching. He's talking now about the focus of the Old Testament. That is, as his teaching was not based on clever stories, the writings of the prophets of the Old Testament also did not come from clever clever stories, not from their own understanding. They, too, were not following cunningly devised fables. Not their own interpretation. Now, I've seen, so have you, some Bible scholars try to domesticate the Scriptures by saying, for example, that Moses got his ideas from another text, or by dating the text so much later in time based on archaeology that it's no longer prophetic. But the the witness of the Bible itself is that it came not from human wisdom, nor even from Moses, but it came from God. And that's a faith matter. We believe the Bible says what it is, or we say, well, maybe it's true. Maybe it's archaeology, and it came a lot later. Well, maybe somebody else wrote it, not even Moses. But the Bible says these things are written not by human wisdom, not by science, not by discovery, but by the Holy Spirit. 21. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through human Prophets, though human, excuse me, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's the Bible's description of how it came to be. The human writer writing from the divine source. That's what this visitor was talking about who handed me this note. He's saying, talk about the source, not just the writer. That's good advice. We need to remember that when we're reading Peter's letter, it wasn't Peter's ideas. We're reading Paul's letters. It didn't come from some dream or some idea that Paul had. It wasn't Paul speaking for himself. He, along with all the Bible writers, were, as the Bible puts it here in Peter, carried along by the Holy Spirit. The KJV says, moved by the Holy Spirit. The message paraphrase says, prompted by the Holy Spirit. The New Life Version says, they spoke what the Spirit told them to speak. That's the message there. We're taken to a companion text, which says about the same thing. Second Timothy 3.16 All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture given by inspiration of God. It's easier to discredit the parts of the Bible we don't like when we keep this truth hidden from view. We can discredit Peter, other Bible writers, based on their human limitations, their culture, their education, their biases. But in 2 Timothy 3, we're reminded that the Bible writers were not writing their own ideas. They were not limited by their own experiences. They were not conveying their own private opinions. 
The Bible is not a reflection of their biases and their shortcomings. The Holy Spirit took charge. It's his book. It's important to keep in mind. Also, this connection, we know that the Holy Spirit, when he speaks, only speaks about Jesus. Christ explained that himself. So, it's the Holy Spirit's book, but the Holy Spirit's topic is Christ. John sixteen fourteen. Christ is speaking. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it unto you. It's Christ explaining the work of the Holy Spirit. Same thing, NIV. It is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The Holy Spirit's book, but his topic is the same, always Jesus. Again, John fourteen twenty six. But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. See, here's the memory thing again. He'll bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The Holy Spirit's communication is always about Jesus, which brings us back to our main point. The Bible is the Holy Spirit's book. He inspired it back in the day. And today he illuminates it to the mind of the one who reads it by faith. He inspired in the past. He illuminates in the present. But when he speaks, he does not speak of himself. He speaks what he received from Jesus. He makes him known. That's the Bible. Its source, its message, and what it means. That's a good text. We'll come back to it in our step two. We'll do some exegesis. We'll treat the text. We'll develop it even more into a sermon. Now, but before I go now, I need to take some time for the text from our previous episode. In podcast 18, talking about the doctrine of the church, some questions have arisen about this podcast, specifically regarding the issues of church discipline. Let me remind you of the main text was Matthew sixteen nineteen, which led us to this companion text in 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read verses 1, 4, and 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So when you're assembled, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's the text. It raises questions. Some of those questions have come. Let me try and clarify it. Let me go back to it for a couple of minutes. First of all, this idea of hand this man over to Satan. It does not mean send him to hell. It doesn't mean condemn him for for eternity. In fact, it's the opposite. The, the, intent, the intent, at least, is the opposite. This idea of hand this man over to Satan is an expression that reflects the belief that the church offers shelter from the evils of the world that are forfeited when the believer returns to the world, which is Satan's domain. Hand him over to Satan means hand him over once again to Satan's domain. There's a covering to being part of the body of Christ. God adds the souls he has saved to the church to receive this covering. Acts 2.47, the Lord adds to the church those who are being saved. Now for this man who is unrepentant, who is boldly living in public sin without remorse, being handed back over to the world where the enemy reigns, is meant to lead him to repentance, 
When he realizes what he's done through suffering, he has another chance to come to himself and repent so that when the Lord Jesus comes, he can still be saved. That's the idea of hand this man over to Satan. New Living Translation has it, so that his sinful nature will be destroyed. Not him destroyed. His sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. That's the motive. That's the intent behind this idea of putting him out of the church, handing him over into the realm of the evil one so he can come to himself. It will seem unloving and judgmental to put a brother out of the church like that. It will be painful for us to do who love that brother from our hearts. Some will say we can't judge somebody else. You know what I've seen in my years in the ministry? I've seen a husband who has left his wife for another woman sitting on one side of the church with with his new wife, while the castaway wife with his children is sitting on the other side of the church, and the church makes no judgment about the situation. Under the misguided assumption that they are being loving, the church allows the situation to continue with no intervention and no discipline. And by their silence, the church members are taking sides with the cheating husband and not standing up for the wife and children. And so she feels abandoned. She's been cheated on twice, once by her husband and now by her family, because to be silent is to condone. That's what I've seen in my lifetime. There are two kinds of godly discipline. Hear me now. Two kinds of discipline. When God disciplines the wicked for their aggression against his people, it is punitive discipline. They're being punished for messing with God's children. Sometimes the punishment based on divine wisdom is capital punishment. God has the, 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 a right to decide life and death, and his sentence is always just and good because he's God. But when God disciplines his own people, it's different. God corre- God's correction then is as redemptive discipline, not punitive. And it will be redemptive if we learn from it and repent. It'll have a good end. Remember Hebrews 12? I'm going to read 7, 8, 11. The Bible says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, then you're not legitimate. No true son or daughter at all. This part, verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5. The church is dealing with a member who's engaged in sin without any remorse. He has not repented. He's flaunting it publicly. The church is dealing with The church is obligated to bring loving discipline for the sake of this member's ultimate redemption. As it it takes a stand for the truth, the church is also protecting itself from the creeping, pervasive, yeast-like corruption that affects the whole body in the end. Now, one last thing I didn't bring out last time. Also in 1 Corinthians 5, this time verses 12 and 13. The whole thing is, is wound up like this. 
What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. See? We don't know how to to render punitive judgment. We leave that to God, who reads the heart. What he does expect for us is for us to render this, uh, this redemptive judgment. To judge in love, in the nature of Christ. Our brothers and sisters inside the church who need correction, who need loving confrontation, who've fallen into sin and have not shown any remorse, any repentance. They need us to intervene in the power of Jesus Christ for their salvation. That's the meaning of that 1 Corinthians 5 text. We'll come back to our doctrine of the Bible next time. Until then, keep humble 